Let me invite all of you now to open your Bibles to the book of Acts. Today we're in chapter 8, and the passage upon which the teaching is based is Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 40. What Luke is doing in his structure of the book of Acts is Jesus told them before he was taken up into heaven, you will receive power and the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. We've already seen that. And in all Judea, we will see that today. And Samaria, we saw that last week. And to the end of the earth. The Ethiopian eunuch represents, uh, when you would consider Jerusalem as the focal central point, would represent the ends of the earth. We're seeing God fulfill in his gracious and powerful way uh, the very command that Jesus gave to his disciples who were standing there gazing um, and waiting. So today we're in Acts chapter 8. We will see three consecutive conversions coming up. Today we're going to see the Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, next week, Saul of Tarsus. And then the week after that, we will see Cornelius. And all of these are big, significant conversions showing us how the gospel moves out and begins to change people's lives everywhere it is proclaimed. And God is at work. God is at work. Let me tell you now, God is at work in the world right now. Be encouraged. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot, and he was reading, of all things, the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of Scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe this generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. As he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. 
This is God's word, let us pray. Father, we do pray today that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable, O Lord, you who are our strength and redeemer, and may you work in us with the word today to make us well-pleasing in your sight. Will you form Jesus Christ in us? And we pray this in his name. Amen. In an address given in 1944 to young men at the University of London, C.S. Lewis reflected on the universal human desire and passion to be included, to be in, not out, to be included, not excluded. He called this object, or the object of this mysterious craving, the inner ring. I want to be in. I want to be in. He believed, or I believe, he said, that in all men's lives at certain periods, and in most men's lives at all periods, between infancy and extreme old age, one of the most dominant elements is the desire to be inside the local ring and the terror of being left out. The inner ring offers the delicious knowledge that we are the people who know. We are the illumined ones. We are the Gnostics. After all, the world seems full of insiders, full of delightful intimacies and confidentialities, and the inveterate lust to be on the inside of these confidentialities is skillful in making a man who is not yet a very bad man do very bad things. A desire simply to be on the inside, whatever uh, that inside may be, is a powerful motivator for people. And it propels us in all sorts of ways and generates a host of different sins. A desire to be an insider may lead to stealing if the inner ring is wealthy, to sensuality if the inner ring is promiscuous, to cheating if the inner ring is academically superior, or to legalism if the inner ring is bound by rules and regulations. It is tiring and unhealthy to lose your Saturday afternoons, says Lewis, but to have them free because you don't matter is much worse. I think Lewis struck on a passion here that Jesus addresses and that this text addresses today given that the Ethiopian eunuch is the ultimate outsider who becomes the ultimate insider by God's grace. And in Luke's writings, both gospel and acts, he emphasizes the themes of community. Lewis taps into the reality that one of the strongest desires and drives we experience as fallen human beings, one of the clearest and most powerful ways our brokenness engages with the social uh, and relational world in which we live in. We want to be inside. We long to be included, even if, let's be honest, especially if that means others are excluded. We deeply desire to be in. When my children were small and we would go to Tennessee to visit parents uh, on Christmas time, uh, our girls, I had three of them, and you know that, and then they would play with their cousins, and that was one of their favorite things to do. And it just so happened this day their cousins were two more little girls. And I was standing in the hallway watching them play, 
unbeknownst to them. And I heard their conversation, and it went like this. Well, I'm going to be this, and you're going to be that, and you're going to be that, and you're going to be that. And then the little girl says, and you are left out. And there was such a glee in her saying to her cousins, you're left out. I'm going to draw the line here. You're on the wrong side of the line. You are an outsider. You're not the kind of people that fit. Luke addresses this often in his gospel. His gospel really focuses on community. And his gospel uh, addresses the sting of exclusion and the craving for inclusion. Uh, Luke, all over the place, uh, tells us that Jesus includes people who are outsiders and excludes the insiders. Though to some degree the social reversal is seen in all four Gospels, it is pronounced in the Gospel of Luke. In Luke chapter 2, it's the lowly shepherds who are highlighted uh, as the noteworthy visitors to the newborn Jesus, not the wise men from the East. Shepherds were low life. I'll just leave it at that. The rest of the Gospel continues in the same way. Um, we have to bear in mind that Jesus is in a culture of deeply ingrained social hierarchies built into the New Testament world concerning men and women, Jew and Gentile, educated and ignoramuses, rich and poor, free and slave, upright and immoral, political zealots and political collaborators. Their day was an author uh, authoritarian uh, way and structured hierarchical way. The interesting thing is, in Luke 3, those of direct descent from Abraham who are designated by John the Baptist as a brood of vipers to be replaced, if need be, by the very stones underfoot. In Luke 4, Jesus' outrage is here is by reminding that two of the ultimate Jewish insiders, Elijah and Elisha, healed not the Israelites, but rather the outsiders of the day, a poor Gentile widow, a diseased pagan soldier named Naaman. In chapter 5 of Luke's Gospel, Jesus invites a tax collector named Levi to become an insider, eats with him at his house, table fellowship of all things. While those Jewish men with the best educations, the best pedigree, and the highest moral standards grumble. Jesus blesses outsiders, curses insiders in Luke 6, blesses the poor, the weeping, and the reviled while pronouncing woes on the rich, the laughing, and those whom others speak well. Showing that he does not have kind of a reverse bias against insiders simply because they're insiders, Jesus accepts a dinner invitation from a Pharisee named Simon in chapter 7, just as he had eaten with the tax collector. And a woman of the city who was known to be a sinner, more than likely a prostitute, is welcomed and forgiven while Simon is on the outside. What is Luke saying in his gospel? Wake up! Wake up! There's a reversal, a great reversal going on here. In Luke 9, Jesus picks up a, a child among the disciples and as an example of whom they should receive while those who are ready to leave everything behind so long as they can first say goodbye to their parents are not fit for the kingdom of God. In chapter 10, a socially despised Samaritan is the hero of the famous parable rather than the socially revered priest. You think Jesus is trying to make a point in the Gospel of Luke? Do you think so? 
I think he is. In Luke 13, many will expect to get into the kingdom of God, yet will be excluded, while people will come from east and west and north and south, that is, from the outside, and recline at the table in the kingdom. In Luke 14, the insiders who were initially invited to the great banquet end up rejected, replaced by the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. The younger son in Luke 15 who wishes his father dead and wastes his inheritance is in, while the older son working hard and respectfully all his life is out. A commentary on those who are listening, the tax collectors and sinners on the one hand and the Pharisees and the scribes on the other. In chapter 16, it's poor wretched Lazarus who enters heaven while his rich neighbor is tormented in hell. In Luke 17, it is only the despised Samaritan who returns to express gratitude to Jesus among the ten lepers who are healed. And in chapter 18, it is the hated tax collector who goes home justified, not the ethically scrupulous, socially exalted Pharisee. Chapter 19, Jesus eats with and saves the oppressor, that is Zacchaeus, the tax collector. Luke 20 describes the transfer of a vineyard, an Old Testament symbol for the people of God, to the other Gentile territory tenants. And in Luke 21, he praises the offering of a poverty-stricken woman instead of the gifts and talents of the rich. Scattered throughout all of these accounts is highlighted to us over and over again, Jesus welcoming and uh, welcoming the socially alienated and alienating the social, uh, socially revered. Now, we just mentioned a few, but if I had to say all in all, all through Luke, outsiders are in and insiders are out. Tax collectors, prostitutes, Gentiles, Samaritans, children, sinners, younger son, out, or in, excuse me, in. Teachers of the law, scribes, Pharisees, lawyers, dutifully religious and socially respected older sons are out. Out of the kingdom. Some scholars think we should see that Luke 19.10 is the one verse summary of the gospel. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. Paul Turnier says, well, there is indeed a reversal. God prefers the poor, the weak, the despised. What religious people have difficulty in admitting is that he prefers sinners to the righteous. In today's terms, Jesus came to seek and to save hookers, pimps, dishonest CEOs, welfare dependents, convicted felons, liberal journalists, drug addicts, the homeless, the smelly, the disenfranchised, ethnic minorities, and social rejects. It's a biblical reversal. The glad heart of God is drawn to those whom the world holds at arm's length. And yet Jesus is with this group constantly while he's on earth. In one rabbinic prayer, for example, in the first century, a Jewish man would thank God every day that he was neither a Gentile nor a slave nor a woman. Explicitly, these three are the very first barriers Paul breaks down in Galatians 3.28. In Christ Jesus, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. 
There's neither male nor female. Implicitly, these are the three categories into which those who make up the core of the group of the church planet Philippi in Acts chapter 16 falls. The Gentile Philippian jailer, a slave girl whose demon is exercised, and Lydia, the businesswoman. The inclusion of outsiders is uniquely evident, especially in the third gospel which is why he includes this Ethiopian eunuch in his story of the gospel. Let's get into the story. It's a short story, and there's not a lot that I want to emphasize here, but I want to take you through the narrative, and I want to drive home over and over to you the lengths God went to to send Philip in the middle of nowhere in the desert to meet a person from Ethiopia who was a Jewish quasi-proselyte. Soon after Peter and John left from the Samaritan city, Philip was given another commission by the Lord. He was told to go south. And the person who gave him this instruction is called an angel of the Lord. And also, later on in the episode, he is called the Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord. Philip was sent along the desert road that goes about 60 miles from Jerusalem to Gaza, which was the most southerly of five Philistine cities, which near the Mediterranean co uh, coast. The Ethiopia of those days corresponded to what we would call the Upper Nile re uh, region, reaching approximately from Aswan to Khartoum. The man from that region to whom Luke introduces us was not only a eunuch, that is, uh, but an important official in charge of all the treasure of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. Candace is known to have not been a personal name, but rather a dynastic title for the queen mother who performed certain functions on behalf of the king. Now, he was a eunuch because he chose to be castrated. And he chose to be castrated to fit himself for work in the court of the queen. The Ethiopian official whom Philip was sent to was her treasurer, chancellor, and presumably a black African. But he had gone to Jerusalem, of all things, to worship. A pilgrim at one of the annual festivals, now on his way home, he was sitting in his chariot reading the scroll of Isaiah the prophet. Apparently, while in Jerusalem, he purchased a scroll. You had to be rich to do that. How would he even know how to read it? He had to know Greek to know how to do that. This is a pretty sophisticated guy. You know, he's, he's not, a, not a hick, not a bumpkin, uh, not a local yokel. He is quite an impressive person in every way. And so, apparently, he, this meant that he was attempting to be a convert to Judaism. And apparently, when the Jews were dispersed, they penetrated at least into Egypt and probably beyond. And perhaps by now, the promise to the eunuchs in Isaiah 56, verses 3 and 4, had superseded the ban of Deuteronomy 23, 11. Understand something. A eunuch could not was considered unclean, could not approach God. He was separate and apart, could not convert, could not become a proselyte because he was a eunuch. Deuteronomy forbade that. He could not do it. So he's an outsider. He's an outsider to the whole temple complex. And so Philip meets this guy in the, 
stronghold, Philistine stronghold, Gentile territory of Gaza. And the man whom the angels directed to Philip was a Gentile foreigner. And although he had made a pilgrimage to the temple in Jerusalem, he had procured a scroll of the prophet Isaiah. He was not Jewish, but Ethiopian, an administrator from the court of the queen, nor could he have even become a proselyte, a convert to Judaism, a complete convert, because he was a eunuch. He was twice excluded from the worshiping community of Israel, not only as a Gentile, but also as a eunuch, for the Torah commanded a eunuch, and the one emasculated by cutting shall never enter the assembly of the Lord. His status could have been no more than a God-fearer, one who fears God, denied the opportunity to convert to Jerusalem, and excluded forever from the court of Israel in the temple complex. But the pilgrimage of this Ethiopian official to the house of God in Jerusalem is even more so. His faith in the good news about Jesus signaled the beginning of the international expansion of God's kingdom, predicted not only by Jesus in chapter 1, but by the psalmist and the prophets. Listen to these verses. Ambassadors will come from Egypt. Ethiopia will extend her hand to God in allegiance. Psalm 68, 31. Glorious things have been spoken about you, O city of God. I will remember Rahab, that's Egypt, and Babylon, among those who know me, and behold, foreigners, and Tyre, and the people of the Ethiopians. Do you think this guy has read this? I think he has. Surely he's read this. And then in Isaiah chapter 11, he must have seen, and in that day, the root of Jesse will be, even the one who arises to rule the nations, upon him the nations will hope. In that day, it shall be the Lord who will show his hand to be zealous for the, from the remnant, for the remnant of his people, whatever is left from Assyria and from Egypt and from Babylonia and from Ethiopia and from Elam and from the east sunrise and from Arabia. Here's the gospel being fulfilled, being promised in the Old Testament, being fulfilled in the book of Acts. Marvelous. God is at work. God was at work then. God is at work now. We may not understand it. We may not see it. When the Messiah, the descendant of Jesse, would come, the rule of the Lord would extend as far south as the Ethiopian kingdom, which would send tribute and worshipers to the Lord's royal throne in Jerusalem. The foreigner from a distant land whom Philip now instructed was the sign that these ancient promises were coming to fulfillment. If I know one thing about the author Luke, he loves the fulfillment of passages. I have to tell you, you can't really grasp what's going on in the New Testament without a cursory knowledge of at least the Old Testament. So much of it is being fulfilled. But this man was not only a foreigner from Ethiopia, but he was also a eunuch and perpetually unfit for the holy community according to the laws of the earthly sanctuary. Yet prophetic scriptures had spoken a special word of hope to eunuchs and foreigners. In Isaiah 56, let no foreigner who is devoted to the Lord say, the Lord will exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch say, I am a dry tree. For the Lord says this to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what I will and cling to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a place of note better 
than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will not pass out of existence. And to foreigners who are devoted to the Lord to serve Him and to, Lord, to love the Lord's name and to become His slaves, I will bring them into my holy mountain and will make them glad in the house of prayer. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The ancient law excluding uncircumcised Gentiles and castrated eunuchs from the community of the Lord was tied to a physical sanctuary that was now obsolete. Peter would soon learn that the ancient law distinguishing clean and unclean in reference to meats symbolizing an ethnic distinction between clean and unclean people had also served its purpose and dissolved into a deeper definition of holiness, the house of prayer for all nations. And so Philip is commanded to leave a revival Commanded to go 60 miles south, commanded uh, by the angel, he, he comes near this Ethiopian, and he runs alongside close enough to hear the man reading Isaiah the prophet. One man, one man in a chariot reading Isaiah the prophet. He runs up close enough to shout him the question, do you understand what you are reading? Replying that he could not understand unless somebody explains it to him, he invited Philip to come up and sit with him in his carriage. And he does so. And so God has not only given us the gift of scriptures, but he's given us the gift of teaching to help us explain and clarify and understand and uh, uh, apply the scriptures. It is wonderful to note God's providence in this Ethiopian's life. First, enabling him to obtain a copy of Isaiah's scroll. That was rare. That just didn't happen. Just didn't happen. And then sending Philip to teach him out of it. As Professor Howard Marshall writes, the way in which the story is told bears some structural resemblances to another story in which a stranger joined to two travelers and opened up the scriptures to them and took part in a sacramental act and then disappeared from view. That's on the road to Emmaus. Jesus and the two disciples. So we have here a picture of the Ethiopian with the scroll of Isaiah 53 spread out on his lap. You want to talk about low-hanging fruit. That's low-hanging fruit. And with Philip now sitting beside him as the chariot jolted its way further south. The verses Luke quotes speak of a human sufferer who's led like a sheep to the slaughter, like a lamb before the shearer is silent. He experiences deep humiliation. He's deprived of justice. He's killed. The Ethiopians ask the obvious question, who's he talking about? Who's the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? And in reply, beginning with that very passage of Scripture, Philip told him the good news of Jesus Christ. Where did Philip get that? He got that from the apostles and the disciples, the apostles' teaching that occurred in Jerusalem before he was sent out. And so he just simply showed the man Jesus. This is what this, prof uh, this prophecy is about. Now there's no evidence that anyone in first century Judaism was expecting a suffering rather than a triumphant Messiah. 
No, it was Jesus who applied Isaiah 53 to himself and understood his death in the light of it. It was therefore from him that early Christians learned to read Isaiah 53 in that way. So well prepared by the Holy Spirit was the Ethiopian's heart that it seems he believed immediately and went on to ask for baptism. Who was seeking whom? Was the Ethiopian eunuch seeking Jesus? He didn't know what he was seeking. But God was seeking him. You know, people, uh, when I was a young Christian, I used to sh I shared the gospel a lot. I still do when I get the chance. But I went out purposely sharing the gospel with people. And uh, I, would, I would go to them and I'd go through the Romans Road or whatever, Campus Crusade or something like that. And I'd give them a gospel presentation. And then I would ask them if they wanted to pray and invite Jesus into their hearts. And I said, if you ask him, he's a man of his word. He, he's a man of honor. He will respect that. He will come in and indwell you, forgive your sins, make you a new person, ask Jesus in your heart. I wouldn't do it that way today, but I did it that way then. But I had it all wrong until I understood something. People would usually seem to either get me out of their house, they pray with me, or <laughs> pray with me because they were genuinely being spoken to. But I remember when I first began to understand God's sovereignty and the way God saves people, here's how it really goes. Jesus is gently knocking on the door of our hearts. And if we just open the door, he will come in. Let me tell you how it really is. The Lord begins to deal with us. He begins to knock on the door of our heart, and we close the door and lock it. And we put the chain on. And then we do four or five more locks on the door. And then we take our dresser and push it up to the door. We take our couches, pile them up to the door. We take everything in the house we can to be a bearer, push it in the door, and then we run down in the basement and hide. That's what we do. And God sends the Holy Spirit down in the basement. He smokes us out till we run back upstairs, throw everything out of the way, open the door, and jump in the arms of Jesus. That's how you're saved. That is how you are saved. That's how God does it. And that's how God did it with this Ethiopian eunuch. He saved him and called him with a holy calling. Chrysostom contrasts the conversion of the Ethiopian with Saul of Tarsus, and he says this, one has reason to admire this eunuch, for unlike Saul, he had no supernatural vision of Christ, yet he believed. He believed. So great a thing is a careful reading and understanding of the Scriptures. And so Philip baptizes this Ethiopian. Apparently there's enough water there. And uh, Philip uh, certainly, I'm sure, questioned him. There are a couple of verses that may be in your translation that are left out of other translations because they're not in the earliest copies of the New Testament that we have. So they were not included in the reading today and they were more than likely inserted to protect the confession necessary for baptism in the early church. You'll see that in the Bible. But here's what's going on. Philip obviously knew that Simon was not a genuine believer. You better believe he probably questioned this man well. But they came to a place where there was enough water. And so they stopped the chariot. They went down into the water. He baptizes him, and then they come out of the water. 
Uh, as you, most of you know, I was a Southern Baptist pastor for 13 years. And uh, I used to baptize people by immersion. I could tell you story after story about people I immersed. One will do. I baptized a woman one time who was a really large woman. Bless her heart. She must have weighed over 400 pounds. My greatest fear was I can get her under. How am I going to get her up? That was my greatest fear. And so, you know, we had the choir right there in front of the baptistry, and you had little curtains, and they would dramatically open, and I'm standing behind the little baptistry window, and I make whatever comments I make about baptism. And so when I go and I take this woman and I pull her under the water, there's something called displacement. Do you know what displacement is? Displacement is when I took her under the water, a tidal wave, a tsunami... <laughs> of water went over the window and soaked most of the choir. And it was like it soaked them halfway from looking at them from the front. You couldn't even tell they were wet, but from the back half, soaked. Except the guys on the very back row. And I thought at that moment, there's got to be another way. Uh, but I was happy to immerse people, and I think immersion is a valid form of baptism. However, to argue from this passage that he immersed the Ethiopian eunuch is foolish. All we know is they went down into the water and they came out of the water. Nothing is said about anybody going under the water. I uh, was having a conversation with a good Baptist friend of mine who likes to challenge me on baptism all the time. And we'll do it, you know, semantically and lexically over the word baptizo and all the meanings. It can, it can mean dip, it can mean plunge, it can mean submerge, it can mean immerse, it can mean pour, it can mean sprinkle. So how do we know what it means? Well, I was discussing it with my Baptist friend and I said this to him. I said, well, let's, for instance, talk about it this way. Let's say that I go into a, a lake and I go up to my knees in the water, have I been baptized? He said, no. I said, well, how about if I go up to my waist? Have I been? No. I said, well, how about up to my chest? No. I said, how about up to my neck? No. How about up to my eyebrows? No. I said, so the top of my head has to go under the water, right? He said, yeah. I said, well, we take care of that. That's where we pour the water, on top of the head. And he looked at me and went, he didn't know what to say because he'd never heard anybody say that. And I said, I think you're making too much. You're making too much of the mode and not enough about the reality of it. And the reason why we Presbyterians pour and sprinkle is because those images are used in reference to the new covenant, which has immediately come upon the church on the day of Pentecost, the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is poured out upon the church. They're sprinkling in the book of Hebrews all over the place about the realities of the new covenant. And since this is a new covenant administration of the covenant of grace, maybe we're okay doing it that way. Could you concede that? And he, of course, said no. And I said, why? Because if you agree with it, you can no longer call yourself a Baptist. That's why. Jokingly. Enough of that. But the good news is he did baptized, immediately applied the sign of the reality of the new covenant. And then Philip just disappears. He goes immediately. It sounds almost like the Holy Spirit just 
took him on a supersonic ride, just grabbed him, seized him uh, like the rapture or something, and takes him to Ashdod, uh, Azotus in the translation, Ashdod in reality. It's another uh, Philistine city. And he goes up there and continues his ministry. And the eunuch never saw him again, but he went on his way rejoicing. He went away rejoicing. He didn't have the evangelist, but he did have the evangel without human aid, but by the divine spirit who gave him joy. Philip went on evangelizing, working his way north along the coast, preaching the gospel in all towns until he reached Caesarea, which later, if not already, he made his home. Acts 21, 18. He had four daughters. That's about all we know. But what a powerful story of a rank outsider, the ultimate outsider becoming the intimate insider. And isn't that how it is with all of us? Aren't we all unclean? Aren't we all unworthy? Is there nothing in us to offer anyone before the Lord or offer Him anything but sin? when all our righteousness is as filthy rags, aren't we welcomed into the family as outsiders? Outsiders becomes insiders because that's how grace works. And it works no other way. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for this chapter being in the Bible. Um, so much great stuff that just ministers to us stirs our hearts because it's true and it's real and it's the work of the Holy Spirit and we're in that same world we are the church and we are indwelt by your spirit and empowered by him and we can share the gospel with anyone anywhere anytime expecting you to work on those who belong to you now father as we continue to worship we pray your blessings upon us, and we thank you for the faithful giving of this church during this time of crisis, and we pray that that support would find its way toward other Ethiopian eunuch-type outsiders to minister to the brokenness of our culture. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.